Uh, good morning, uh, I'm Dan, and I've been uh, a partner at Morelands for about five years now. Um, and it's my privilege to be able to read God's word for us this morning as we begin our new series in 2 Samuel. So we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziglag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, The men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul, leaning on his spear, with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He, answered, he asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for that reading. And uh, thank you, Joe, for that introduction. Let me add my welcome. It's great to see you. Uh, my name is Danny, if we haven't met. And uh, let me welcome everybody in here. Uh, let me welcome you in the link building across the courtyard and also uh, if you're watching at home. And it is rather strange, isn't it, as you uh, come to church and you're kind of wondering who you're going to see and who you're not going to see. Um, it's a bit like those old films where people were suddenly kind of raptured away and hopefully there's a, there's a, there's a good explanation and uh, people are isolating or otherwise. And uh, it's fantastic, isn't it, as Joe said, that we can still keep up and gather uh, physically as well as uh, online. So very, very warm welcome, uh, whether you're here or whether, for whatever reason, you've had to uh, stay back at home. Uh, do turn to uh, that passage. If you didn't uh, bring a Bible, they're not printed out now, but there are some Bibles on the end of the row. 
and uh, that can be your Bible for the morning. It will then go into its own special uh, Bible isolation uh, for the next meeting. So do grab a Bible and open it at 2 Samuel uh, as we get down to uh, this book. Well, let me introduce it like this. That I don't think any of us will need persuading this morning that we live in a world in desperate need of good news. Not just those little news clips you get at the end of the bulletin, you know, a panda's been born in a zoo or something like that, but really good news. News that puts a smile on your face and in your heart. News that tells you life can be better. The claim of the Christian gospel is that the arrival of the coming of the rule of Jesus Christ to our world is the best news that anyone in this world can hear. In fact, that is what the word gospel means. It is big news, news that has to be shared, news that changes lives, and for those who welcome it, it is good news. But what is it about the coming of the kingdom or rule of Jesus Christ that makes it such good news? Or to put this more simply, why is it so good to have Jesus in charge of your life and of our world? Well, I think that that question is what the book of 2 Samuel is actually here to show us. The purpose of the second book of Samuel is to show us how good the kingdom of Jesus Christ is and how it is different to any other human kingdom. And therefore, I think what the book is going to do for us as we study it over these eight weeks is convince us and remind us and comfort us that having Jesus in charge of your life is the best thing that can happen to you. And therefore, if you're not a Christian, it's going to invite you to be one. If you are a Christian, it's going to encourage you to continue and to rejoice that you are. Now, let me show you that this point is made beautifully by David at the end of the book. As the children so helpfully remind us on that video, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are one continuous story. And the books are tied together in a particular way. They're tied together as one story over two books using three songs. So let me show you what I mean. The first song is the song of Hannah, which Joe read a little bit from earlier, which functions, as we saw in the last series, as the theme tune of the book. That's the first song. The second one is the lament of David, which is, if you've got chapter 1 open in front of you, you'll see we're going to come to next week. This functions as the pivot between the two books as we move from the kingship of Saul to the kingship of David. And the third song that ties these two books together and gives us a bit of structure for understanding it are the last words of David in chapter 22 to 23, which functions as a kind of thematic conclusion or summary of the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. So you may like to flip over to that now, otherwise it's going to be on the screen. Listen to what David says here at the very end of his life as he looks back on this whole story. He's speaking 
as an inspired prophet, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. It's a little summary statement. You might think, well, there's David just kind of bigging up his own reign. But he's a spirit-filled prophet. And he's saying something very important as he looks back on this long story. He's saying, as David's kingdom, with all its brilliance and, as we'll see, all its failures come to a close, David, inspired by the spirit, begins to look ahead to another kingdom, another rule, one that is the perfect fulfillment of his, one that succeeds where he's failed, one that actually takes the world to where God always intended it to be. What is this kingdom? It is the kingdom, the kingship, the rule of Jesus Christ. And look at what David says. He says, this kingdom that is coming is so good, so perfect, so pure, that when it comes... It's going to feel like a whole new world, a whole new day for the world. It's going to be like a new beginning. And I need to ask you this morning, do you want to be part of that kingdom? Do you want that good, perfect, pure world to come to our world? So that instead of the darkness and disease and death that we're experiencing now, our world is full of light and joy and peace and blessing. Another way of putting this is to think of that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, where he taught them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And David says, when that day comes, when the rule of the Christ comes, it'll be like a brand new day for the whole world. Do you want that day to come? Do you want to hear the joyful news of Jesus Christ? Do you want the comfort and challenge of knowing that this kingdom is the one that will last? That is what your life should be about? Well, come with me then to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we'll pick up the story so far in verse 1. Where we read that after the death of Saul... David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. We're heading back to around 1000 BC and to the troubled young nation of Israel. And in that opening sentence, the narrator reminds us of two important events that bring us quickly up to speed with the story so far, the story of 1 Samuel. We've already heard the children on the video uh, remind us very helpfully of those two events. But let me remind you again. The first, in verse 1, is the death of Saul in the battle of Mount Gilboa. The book of 1 Samuel tells the story of Israel's first king, King Saul. He was, you may remember, the king God gave to Israel in response to their request to make them like the nations around them. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel, which made him Israel's first Messiah, Israel's first Christ. And for a few short chapters in 1 Samuel, 
we get the tantalizing prospect that God's kingdom is on its way. If only Saul and the people can take God seriously, obey his word, seek his glory, not their own, then that tantalizing prospect that David mentions in chapter 23 will come. It'll be like a whole new day, a light and blessing will come to the world. But if you've read 1 Samuel, and I hope if you're a regular at Morlands, you will have read it through the week, or you'll remember it at least from when we studied it, you will no doubt remember that Saul's reign and life were a disaster. He disobeyed God and did his own thing. And if you've got a very good memory, or if you've read it recently, you'll remember that the particular act of disobedience for which Saul forfeited his kingdom is recorded in 1 Samuel 15. It's one particular thing that he did where he refused to carry out God's instruction to destroy the Amalekites, a detail which will be significant in a moment. After this act of disobedience which might not seem a big deal to us, but is Saul rejecting the kingship of God. After this act of disobedience, God then chooses a replacement to Saul, and this is David. This time, the king is not chosen in response to the people's request for a king like the other nations, but we're told that David is a king chosen after God's heart, which you may remember means he's been chosen by God for God's own purposes. And so from 1 Samuel 15 onwards, there is the rather complicated situation that Israel has two kings, two Christs, two messiahs. There is Saul and David. And the story from 1 Samuel 15 onwards is this overlapping and contrasting story of the decline of one kingdom and the rise of another and all the conflict that goes with it. And for the rest of 1 Samuel, Saul, full of bitterness and jealousy, is engaged on one thing only, and that is killing David, hunting him down, putting him into exile. And so the story is David on the run for his life. And that long story of conflict comes to a swift but not unexpected end in the great battle which the children mentioned on the video, Israel's battle with their enemy, the Philistines, recorded in detail in 1 Samuel 31. Well, look with me at verse 1 then, and that is what the narrator wants us to remember, wants us to recall this event in that summary sentence of verse 1, the death of Saul and the end of that part of the story. Well, what was David doing while Saul was meeting his end in the battle with the Philistines? Well, that brings us to the second event mentioned in verse 1, David's victory over the Amalekites. So I don't know how well you know the uh, geography of the ancient Near East. I I had to look it up, but if you imagine it like this, it's a long country, isn't it? A bit like Britain. And Saul's death occurs in the north, in Mount Gilboa. And while that battle has been going on, for various reasons which you can read about in 1 Samuel, David has been engaged in his own battle against the very people Saul was supposed to have dealt with. And this is a sign of how different their reigns will be. 
At the very moment Saul is dying because of his failure to eradicate the Amalekites, David is striking those very Amalekites down. And so what has David been doing while Saul's been fighting the Philistines? Well, in the far south, in David's hometown of Ziklag, roughly 90 miles away to the south, he has been dealing with the Amalekites. And so it's useful to know that there is roughly three days march, or if you're a fast runner, maybe two days of running between the two places. And this is why verse 1, we find David waiting. He is waiting for news. David knows about the battle to the north, but he doesn't yet know the outcome. He is waiting in Ziklag for two days for the gospel announcement, the momentous news to reach him. Well, let's now see how that news reaches him and how he reacts. Let's see what happens on the third day when the news arrives at last. Well, given that background we've just sketched from verse 1, everything points to the news of Saul's death being very good news for David indeed. It was, of course, good news for the Philistines, who at the end of 1 Samuel 31 went round proclaiming, they went round gospeling this news of their victory over Israel's king far and wide. But for the king in waiting, the anointed heir to the throne, whose life has been tormented and haunted by Saul for years, surely the news of his greatest enemy is the news that will make him leap and dance and sing for joy. And this is certainly the way it's presented in the first part of the account between verses 2 and 10. Like all the best news stories, it begins with the breathless arrival of a messenger. Let's look at him in verse 2. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honour. The narrator reserves the information about this man's identity for later. At this point, he's a bit of a mystery. Instead, he shows us his arrival through David's eyes. He tells us he's come straight from Saul's camp. And presumably, David would realise this Having finished dealing with the Amalekites, David has been thinking about nothing else but that decisive battle to the north. He would, I think, have been waiting for news of the outcome, perhaps hanging around, sort of looking for someone to come down the road. And here is the man, the messenger, who has run, presumably, the 90 miles from Gilboa to Ziklag. The details of his clothing being torn and dust on his head are not just the result of his triple marathon, but are signs of mourning and distress. Something has happened. And his action in falling to the ground to pay David honour is a clear sign that here is someone who knows that now David is king of Israel, not Saul. And this is now confirmed in his good news story, which unfolds as David asks him a series of questions. Verse 3, where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked, tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan 
are dead. This is momentous news for the nation, especially for David. If this is true, then at last David's troubles are over. The long exile, the being hunted by Saul, hiding in caves, begging for food, pretending to be insane. All of that can now be put behind him because the big bully has been dealt with and David can at last take up his reign. Furthermore, this is great news for David because all of this has happened without David having blood on his hands. He is 90 miles away. No one can ever accuse him of having a hand in Saul's downfall. What a brilliant gospel this man presented to David that day. But David wants to know more. Maybe there was something about the man's manner or appearance that caused David a flicker of distrust. Maybe the tearing of the clothes and the dust on the hair was a little bit overdone. Maybe the falling on the face was just a little bit too dramatic, as if he was too keen to win David's favour. Or maybe just David got a vibe. But he presses for evidence for his story. Verse 5. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? The messenger's answer to David is simple. How do I know? Because I was there when it happened. I'm not just a second-hand messenger, I'm an eyewitness reporter. Just by chance, mind you, something the Hebrew stresses by repetition, by chance, I happened to be there. Well, let's see what he saw. And as we look at this, there are three tremendous surprises to notice as the conversation continues. And if you're listening in the video link room across the courtyard, these are the three surprises mentioned on the junior sheet. Are you ready to spot the three surprises? The first surprise comes when we learn now the identity of the young man bringing the report. Verse 8, he asked me, who are you? And a Malachite, I answered. This would have been a surprise to David, but even more a surprise to Saul out on the battlefield. Just a few days earlier, remember, David had been striking down the Amalekites because they'd captured his city and the families of his men. But for Saul on the battlefield, facing defeat because of his failure to destroy the Amalekites, this would have been, if it were true, a final and terrible irony. A reminder of the reason God had taken his kingdom away, right in front of his face, at the last moment. But the second surprise is even greater. Verse 9. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that he had fallen and could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. The man's story is quickly moving from an eyewitness account to a story of the most infinite, intimate involvement in the most momentous event in Israel's recent history. He now tells David the astonishing fact 
that not only did he witness the king's end, he was the one who brought his life to an end. Not only that, but in a final brilliant flourish, he now produces the two royal items which he has stripped from Saul's body, which serve not only as the proof of what he's saying, but also the symbols that legitimate David's reign. What an amazing young man this is. What a helpful ally he's going to be to David. But there's one final surprise in this section. And you'll only know this if you've read 1 Samuel 31. And the final surprise is that the man's story is a lie. I mentioned that the the battle of Mount Gilboa, the death of Saul, is recorded in some detail in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, just over the page, which of course is just the previous chapter in this long story. And if you've read the chapter, which of course David had not, then you'll know that much of what the young man says is pretty convincing. Like all convincing lies, it's not all untrue. In fact, much of it could be true. Who knows, he may well have been there at Mount Gilboa. I personally think he probably was. That detail of Saul leaning on his spear looks pretty genuine. But when you compare the two accounts, some significant details have changed. The previous passage describes Saul's death a little differently. He was mortally wounded. But in chapter 31, it's the archers, we're told, who wound him, not the chariots. There's no mention of chariots Probably because there weren't any chariots up the top of a mountain. Those of you with with a good grasp of Bronze Age military tactics would have spotted that long ago, wouldn't you? But more than this, it wasn't an Amalekite who finished him off. Saul, in fact, asked his armour-bearer, a kind of bodyguard, to do it. The armour-bearer refused to kill Saul because we are told he was terrified to do so. We'll see the reason for that in a moment. And so Saul actually, in truth, kills himself. He literally falls on his own sword. And the armour-bearer, the only other close witness to this, then did the same. Well, we know all this because we've read 1 Samuel 31. David, of course, knew none of this. He might have had his suspicions... But he had no reason not to take the man's account at face value. And therefore it's important to see that it's not the lying that was the man's greatest mistake. It's not the lying of this man that is the reason for what's happened next. That's not the focus of the narrator. Now this young man made a more fundamental mistake that day. What was his mistake? Well, to understand this, think about this young Amalekite's motives. Put yourself in his shoes. Imagine what is going through his head. If he sees what actually happened on Mount Gilboa, what an opportunity has been given to him. He has put himself in the position of a messenger, bringing good news Not only that, he has put himself in position as the first loyal subject to the new king of Israel. Not only that, but he has set himself up as the best kingmaker since Samuel. 
He has done the deed that David has needed to do. He has killed the old king and he's even brought the crown to him before the Philistines could grab it. What an incredibly helpful young man to give David's kingdom the the little nudge it needed. No wonder he burst into the scene with such breathless excitement with his gospel to tell. And if you can just put yourself in his shoes... What would you be expecting David to do? There'd be a fitting reward, wouldn't there? Perhaps to be instantly enveloped into the inner circle of the royal court. Perhaps to be given a position of responsibility. Or some land, or livestock, or wives, or or cash reward, or at the very least, a pat on the head. Well done, good and faithful servant, that kind of thing. That would be reasonable to expect, wouldn't it? For this kingmaker. Because that is how the world works, isn't it? That is how kingdoms are made. But this man has made an enormous mistake. A mistake that cost him his life. What was the mistake he made? The mistake he made was to assume that David was like any other king. And just how wrong he was is revealed in the next section. What to any other man would be good news to David is bad news. And that's what we see in 11 to 16. It's very easy, isn't it, to see the sense of confusion, bewilderment, utter disappointment that would have stuck the young Amalekite when he sees what happens next. Instead of launching into the party of the year and an ecstatic celebration and then dishing out his expected rewards, David does the very reverse. Instead of celebrating, he grieves, verse 11 and 12. David then takes his clothes and tears them mourns and weeps and fasts. He might expect David to grieve for the men and for Jonathan, but for Saul. And we need to understand why David reacts like this. Think back again to that long, violent conflict in 1 Samuel. I think we saw that David is attacked by Saul no fewer than 11 times in the book. Saul makes 11 attempts on David's life. From chapter 18, when he tries to skewer him with a spear, to the time in 26, when Saul plots to destroy him, when David is in hiding. And as a result, David lived in constant fear, poverty, danger, and discomfort. And the normal human reaction when this is over would be joy and relief, but not for David. Well, why not? Well, you may remember that during those times, there were a number of occasions when David had opportunity to kill Saul himself. When David had an opportunity given to him to advance his kingdom by normal human means. So obvious were these opportunities that David's friends insisted that he was, he was mad not to take them up. You may remember in chapter 24 when David and his men were hiding in the back of a cave and Saul comes to use the cave, uh, to use it as a toilet. And David doesn't, he doesn't know that David's there and his men urge him to take the chance. And look at what he says in 24 verse 6. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him for 
He is the anointed of the Lord. A similar opportunity comes in chapter 26. Very exciting story. David actually creeps into Saul's camp in the night. He goes right up to Saul's bedside while he's sleeping. And David's friends urge him to kill him. But look what he says. Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he'll die or go into battle and he'll perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And this is why, instead of rewarding the messenger, David says this in verse 14. Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and died. For David said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth has testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Can you see now the terrible mistake the young man made? Lying is one thing. And there's a hint in that last line that David doubts the reliability of his testimony. But that's not the reason David executed it. No, the mistake he made was to misjudge God's king. He assumed that David was just like Saul. He assumed he was like other kings. That his kingdom was going to progress through cunning and violence and opportunism. And like any other king, he would rejoice in the news of the death of his adversary. This is normal because this is human. If you're leading a rebellion or a revolution, the number one thing on your to-do list is get rid of the old guard. If you're trying to bring about regime change, the first thing you must do is kill or at least discredit your rival. All through human history, you can see this from Caesar to Macbeth to modern democracies. What else are those TV debates that we see than people killing each other, not with swords, but with words? This is how the world works. But David is not like other kings. He is a king after God's own heart. He is a king unlike any the world has ever seen. And this is the thing that 2 Samuel will teach us. That God's king will be a king of righteousness and justice. A king who takes God's rule seriously. A king free of guilt. A king who will not have blood on his hands. No matter how convenient for his cause, it was to be otherwise. Why is David like this? Because he's believed the song of Hannah. He trusts God to bring down the proud and lift up the humble, to bring about his kingdom his way and in his timing. And this is the kind of king that God used to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is why in the final few minutes, there's one final piece of news we need to see this morning. The good news that the king is Jesus. As we study 2 Samuel this term, we're going to see the kingdom of David advance. Saul is dead and now the way is clear for the kingdom of Israel to become the kingdom of David, the king of God's own choice. We're going to see this little model of God's kingdom unfolding as we read the book. 
As we do, we're going to encounter some wonderful stories and some wonderful, as well as some despicable characters. But none of it will mean anything at all unless we remember that this is part of the bigger story the Bible tells so that we will recognize that the king is Jesus. And we begin here with this fundamental truth. The coming of the kingdom of Jesus is good news because it's not like other kingdoms. That is really all I want us to take away this morning. The kingdom of Jesus is good news because it is not like other kingdoms. And this is what I want us to think about this week and reflect on as we go about our lives in this world. How different the kingdom of Jesus is. How different it is to be part of that kingdom. How good it is to give your loyalty to a kingdom like this. How right it is to place your hope in this kingdom. See, just imagine for a moment if the Amalekite was right and David's kingdom, God's kingdom, could be advanced through lives and violence. What if he was right to think that David was just like Saul and just like all the other kings and empires that have come and gone through history? What if he was right that peace and prosperity comes with, to those with the biggest weapons, the biggest brains, the most power? Because that is what people think, isn't it? That is the normal way of thinking and acting. And the evidence for that is all around us in the broken, violent world in which we live. In every conflict, in every election, in every war, in every workplace, you have human kingdoms doing what human kingdoms do. And if the Amalekite were right, God's kingdom, God's work, would be no different. But Jesus' kingdom is different. And therefore, those who belong to it will be different. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of justice and peace and mercy and righteousness and truth. It is never advanced by deception or cunning or human power or violence. It is advanced by love and sacrifice and truth. But of course, what I've just said is not quite true, is it? Jesus' kingdom does, in fact, come by violence. But not the violence against his enemies, but the violence of the cross. As God's perfect, sinless king offers himself up to death in order to have mercy on all who bow to him. This is why the gospel is really good news. Because in the midst of a world of lies and violence and war, Jesus' kingdom is different. It is available now for all who turn and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Well, why don't we do that as I lead us in prayer? When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise, 
on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus, your righteous, innocent King, gave himself up to violence by the hands of those he came to save in order to show mercy and to bring that peace of a new world. We pray that we'd be people who choose Jesus now, work for his kingdom to come, and trust and long for and look forward to that heavenly rain coming to earth. In his name we pray. Amen.